If you have your Bibles, I'd like to open to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. The message that you just heard in the video is exactly what God was telling Moses when he had a face-to-face encounter with God. And God invited him to be on the front lines of the work that he was going to do. And then the next thing you see over these next uh, chapter and a half is you begin to learn about uh, Moses' response. Moses is very much like, like you and I. And that is that when there is some God-sized assignment, most of the times we don't just jump in on it. We begin to make some excuses. And to have a burning bush experience to where God speaks to him, gives him this invitation, and he says, our people have been in captivity over 400 years. You're going to be the one that I'm going to use to lead them out. You're going to go to the people, tell them the good news. You're going to go to Pharaoh and demand that he lets the people out because that's what God's said to do. So Moses' response is found in verse 11 when he says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So his first thing was there was a lot of self-doubt there. Who am I? I mean, I'm just, I'm an 80 year old man. I'm assistant to a shepherd. Uh, I had a murder charge uh, 40 years ago there in, uh, in Egypt where the statute of limitations have run out. Yet you want me to go run back to the people and tell them all these things you've told me. He says, you know, I just don't think I'm the guy for that. And he's also at the same time questioning God's ability to select leadership. God says, you're the man that I want to do this. But Moses says, no, this can't be right. But what we need to understand is whoever God selects, God equips. And so whatever assignment we take is not because of your incredible abilities. It's because of what God will do in you to see it happen. So it's what he's telling Moses. Moses saying, I just, I just don't have it. God begins to tell him. He says, listen, uh, you just go back to him. And this is a sign is that once you tell them that God has told you this, one day when you end up uh, over there out of Egypt, it'll be a, a sign to you that it was all correct. Well, that wasn't enough for him. Because then he comes back in verse 13. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? If I just go to them and say, hey, I had this um, epiphany and that God spoke to me, what am I supposed to tell them? And God says, I'll tell them exactly what you tell them. You say, I am who I am. I'm the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the same God in the past, the same God today, and the same God in the future. And then he reiterated, and this is what we're going to do. You're going to come out of there. We're going to get you into land that's flowing with milk and honey. You just tell them who I am. And see, the, the question is there, well, I just don't, I, I don't think I'll have all the answers. I, I don't think they'll listen to me. I'm sending you. You just tell them who I am. And after he covers all that, you get to chapter 4, verse 1. And in chapter 4, verse 1, then Moses again says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. No one's going to believe me. And so God says, I'll give you three signs. Here's the staff. You see the staff you got in your hand? Yes, throw it down. When he threw it down, it became a snake. He says, pick it back up. He picked it back up. It became a staff again. He says, you do that to him. Hey, sign number two. Take your hand, okay, take your right hand, stick it inside your cloak, pull it out, and it was leprous. And that had to be a scary thing. He says, now put it back in the cloak, pull it back out. It was perfect again. And then number three, go to the Nile River, take out some water, take the water, pour it on the ground, and when it's poured on the ground, it will turn to blood. I got you three signs there. 
This will get you in the front door. Go from there. Moses, well, I don't know. I'm still not sure. So in verse 10, Moses says, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Some people believe that Moses stuttered. And so he says, I'm not a good speaker. It's not just a public speaker. I'm just not a good speaker, period. I've got a speech impediment. And God's response is great. And that is, am I not the one that created the mouth? Am I not the one that created the ears? Listen, all you need is me. I will give you what you need to say. So then he comes back in the last one in verse 13. And he said, but Lord, just send someone else. Just send someone else. You know that I am not the right man for this job. Just send someone else. And says, then God began to get a little angry. He's done pretty good through the four excuses. But the fifth one, he says, okay, listen, you got a brother named Aaron. He speaks really well. Tell you what, you take him with you. I'll tell you what to say. You tell it to Aaron. Aaron can be, can be the voice box to talk to Pharaoh if you want that to be. But this is the way it's going to be. And I love the end of that chapter. Excuse me, end of verse 17. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs, the assumptive close. And while you're going, be sure and take the the staff and go with you. What Moses did was he hit a crisis of belief. And when he hit that crisis of belief, he began to ask a lot of questions. Just like every one of us has either done in our life or will do at times in our life. And that's what fits in to what we're studying on experiencing God, knowing and doing the will of God. Now, each week we have looked at seven realities. And so we want to take a quick look again at our seven realities to see how all of this fits in. And so with our diagram, we start out by saying that God is always at work around you. No question about that. God is always working around you. And then second thing is that God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is both real and personal. And we keep coming back to this part because everything comes back to your relationship with God. He wants to pursue a close relationship with you. Well, once that happens, then all of a sudden God invites you to become a part of his work. He says, I'm at work everywhere. I want to invite you to be a part of my work. When you get that invitation, we get that through God speaking. And God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, through prayer, through circumstances, and also through the church. And he reveals about himself, his purposes, and his ways. And the last two weeks, this is what we've talked about. How God speaks to us through the word, uh, through our prayers, through circumstances, and through Biblical church, uh, through biblical counseling of people in our church, uh, getting Christians to speak to you, and just through the church as itself. God speaks. Well, then once God speaks, then you come to the crisis of belief. And once you hit that crisis of belief, you've got to make a decision. Do I go God's way or my way? And if I decide to go my way, I then move into an adjustment. Because you must make major adjustments in your life in order to do the things that God's called you to do. But once you've made the adjustment, then you get to the reality number seven. And that is when you come to know God by experience, when you obey him and he accomplishes his work through you. But today, I want us to focus on this crisis of belief. Now, when you think the word crisis, what do you automatically, you think about something that is, um, uh, that's like, uh, we got a real problem here. It's real dangerous. That's not it at all. You see, what crisis is, 
Crisis comes from a Greek word that means decision. It means decision. And so what it means is once God speaks to you, all of a sudden you will come to a turning point or a fork in the road where you have to make a decision. And the decision that you make is a response. You will either respond and say, I will do the things that God has called me to do, or I will go my own way and I will miss out on what it is that God purposed for me to do. It's the crisis of belief. And which way will you go with that? See, God's invitation for you is to work with him, and it always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. And so all of these words have a great deal of meaning, and at the end, we're going to talk even more about faith and action. Okay? Have you got this? God-sized assignment. Every time a God-sized assignment comes, there will be a crisis of belief. But I want you to understand that God-sized assignments come in all shapes and sizes. It's easy for us to walk out of here at the end of this study and believe, wow, there's going to probably be a burning bush experience one time in my life and I better hit it right. You may have some major uh, opportunities in your life that will be God-sized. But I believe that God is constantly talking to us every day, inviting us to work with him, and you will have God-sized assignments throughout your life that will come in all different shapes and sizes. So every crisis of belief has at least four elements to it that we want to talk about today. And uh, so let me talk about each one of these elements. Number one, the first one is, is that every crisis of belief has an encounters with God which require faith. An encounter with God requires faith. First point under that, faith is confidence that what God promises will come to pass. Faith is confidence that what God promises will come to pass. Sight is the opposite of faith. If you can see clearly how something can be accomplished, then faith is really not needed. If I can see how I can get it done, it doesn't take much faith. And what is interesting for us here in America, we all try to build our life to where we can control our life and to where everything can be very comfortable. I know I'm that way. I'd love to get to the point to where I feel like I've got control over everything, all the finances, all the health, everything moving, all the decisions, and and just want to get in this comfort bubble of to where I think I've got everything under control. That sounds like a good life. But the problem with that, that's not really what God wants in our life. Because what God wants us is to be able to make those steps of faith. And we can get so comfortable in our life that when these crises of belief come, we don't want to ever go that way because it's uncomfortable. I want to stay within my bubble. I want to stay within my comfort. And so what God does at times is he will introduce things into our lives, introduce these things so it will drive us to have an utter dependence on him so that we can see his power and we can see his glory. I give you a second point on this, and that is your faith does not rest on a concept or an idea. Faith is centered on a person, and that is God Himself. Now, this is huge because how many times does somebody come up to you in a situation and says, "Hey, you just got to have faith. You just got to have faith. You got to have more faith." And I know people walking through tough times or trying to do something. Say, hey, if you just get more faith, you're okay. And what we think is, is that faith is our pursuit. 
I just got to bow up and get more faith. Listen, your faith does not rest on a concept. What it does is it's centered on the person, and that is God himself. The strength is not your amount of faith. Your strength is the object of the faith, and that is my faith in God and my faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And see, when it's, biblical faith is only valid when it is focused on God and what he says and purpose you to do. Jesus told his followers, if you have faith in God, they, you can do even greater things, he says, than I have done. Our faith in God must be based on God's power and not on human wisdom. I just think about it. What if Moses just said, okay, I just got to bow up and have enough faith. There's no way that Moses could have led the children out of Egypt across the Red Sea and gone into the wilderness and provided them water, bread, and meat. He could have never done that. The only way he could do that was he depended on God, who was the one who provided all of those things. The disciples could not feed the multitude. When there were 5,000 people sitting there on the mountainside and they went to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, uh, these people need to go home, get something to eat. And Jesus looked at him and says, you feed them. What do we do? There's nothing they could have done. But they put their faith in Jesus. When they put their faith in Jesus, they're able to feed the whole multitude. Jesus told them they could go out and heal the sick and raise the dead. They couldn't do that on their own. The only way they could do that was that they had a faith in who Christ is. So faith is not on a concept or an idea, but it's centered on a person, God himself. This is why when we go through these seven realities, reality number two is to build a love relationship with God, a relationship that is real and personal. And once I've built that relationship, and I'm thinking about a God-sized assignment, and God says, Danny, you've come to this crisis of belief. Will you go with me or not with me? If I have built this this, um, uh, uh, relationship with God, then what I know is, is that I can depend on him. He's called me to this God-sized activity. I can do it. Rather than me standing over here saying, I just got to bow up and get enough faith. It's not the pursuit of faith. It's pursuit in who Christ is. And so when God lets you know what he wants you to do, it'll be something that only you can do through his power. Obedience indicates faith in God. Disobedience reveals a lack of faith. And without faith, a person cannot please God. Without faith, a church cannot please God. And when God calls us to join him, he doesn't call us to accomplish some task because of our ingenuity, our ability, or our limited resources. With faith, we we proceed confidently because we know that he is the one that's going to bring it to pass. If there is a God-sized activity that God has called you to do, and in your mind, you can figure out because of your resources and because of your talents that you can do that, that's not a God-sized activity. God-sized activity is when God will take what your talents are, but then there has to be that element of faith of saying, I have no idea how we can do this except through you, Lord, and I'm trusting you. You're the one that's that shared this plan, I got to step forward on it. That's where your crisis of belief. All right, number two, second part of a crisis uh, of belief. Encounters with God are God-sized. Encounters with God are God-sized. Now, here's a truth that you need to write down, and that is God wants the world to know him. God wants the world to know him. 
This is why God gives us these God-sized encounters, because he wants the world to know him. Um, We get this misguided perception that as a Christian, if I will just get out in the world and do a lot of good things, and, um, and I'm all for this, stick with me on this. If we go and, and we, and we try to, try to help the down and out and we, uh, try to, uh, take on some charities and some other things and, and do good work out there and we show people as Christians that, um, that because we're followers of Christ, we do these good things. That's, a, that's good to do that. And then we say, because we do those good things, then the world will look at us and they will say, wow, those guys are doing good things. They'll be attracted to the Savior and people come to know Christ as Savior. Now hear me clearly, that is good and that is correct and I think we need to continue to do that. However, let's don't park there. Because you see, what most people do is they will see us do those good things, and you know what they'll come up? And I've had people come up to me and say this. Hey, I'm so excited that you're doing these things, and I'm, I'm proud of you for that. And, uh, but you know, it, that, uh, the, the church thing, the Jesus thing, it just kind of doesn't work for me. It's just not my thing. But I really do appreciate what you're doing out here. And really what they're doing is they're seeing you and, and hopefully seeing the love of God. But you know, what God wants to do is to do something through you and through me that is so God-sized that when the world looks at it, they don't see you and they don't see me, but they see God in it. That's the way God works. You see, see, the reason that the world isn't looking to us and rushing into the churches is not so much they don't see us out there doing good things, they don't see us doing God-sized things. So all of a sudden they look up and they say, who is this God? Whoa. And this is the way God has worked throughout history. Is God has God-sized activities so that the world will get to know him. Let me just, let me just show you uh, over here. An example is Moses. All right. Remember, they had Moses crossing the Red Sea. God directed Moses when they left to go and camp right next to the Red Sea. That is about the most ridiculous military strategy I've ever heard. Because they're coming up and they're stuck with the Red Sea here. They've got the army of Pharaoh coming this way. They've got no place to escape. God has put them in a box. And why did he put them in that box over there? And this is what he tells them. He says in Exodus 14, 4, I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so he says, get up, Moses, boom, split the sea go across the sea, come back. The Egyptians try to come through, waters crush them. This is what he says. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in him and in his servant Moses. See, what God is wanting to do is he's wanting to lead us to accomplish God-sized things. He's wanting a church to be able to attempt something that it cannot afford. He wants to ask someone to do something outside of their giftedness. He wants to lead someone to do something that they're afraid of doing. 
And this is where God wants to see a God-sized activity. It's not just Moses. What about Joshua? When Joshua took over after Moses died and the children of Israel were getting ready to go in the promised land, God said, I want you to cross the Jordan River at flood stage. Give me a break. Flood stage? And what did God do again? He made the, made the sea dry. Took that river, made a place for them, and they walked across. Why did he do that? Joshua 4, 24. So this is so that all the people of the earth may know the Lord's hand is mighty. And so that you may always fear the Lord, your God. That the, all the people of the wor- earth may know the Lord's hand is mighty. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those three guys? Nebuchadnezzar the king said, bow down at my idol. They said, we will not bow down. He said, if you don't bow, you will burn. And he brought them into his office. He played the music. He said, bow down. They said, we won't. He says, you'll be crispy critters. He picked them up and he threw them into the furnace. And when he threw them into the furnace, they were walking around in there and there was like a fourth one that was in there and he couldn't believe and he brought them out. And when he brought them out, they were alive without even the smell of smoke. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar said. Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him for there is no other God who's able to deliver like this. There's a God-sized stand. There's a God-sized activity that when they looked at it, all he could sit there and see was God. And for us, what God is wanting is he's wanting churches and he's wanting individuals to be able to do God-sized activities. And God has this encounter asking us to do something so that when people see it and people experience it, They don't come back talking about how incredible you were. They talk about how incredible your God was. The world comes to know God when they see God's nature expressed through his activity. And when God begins to work, he accomplishes something only he can do. And both God's people and the world come to experience him in ways they've never known him before. This is why God gives God-sized assignment to people and to churches. We look at it on a big scale. You can look at it. From a church standpoint, when we, we go back in our church and we look at a 2010 vision that was adopted back in 2002. And the 2010 vision for us, when it was that missions vision that would get us outside the walls of this church, is something that God used to dramatically reshape us and to place that in our DNA. And as I was reminded while I was talking to someone this week, I said, it was a vision I believe that God gave me and I was able to then share it with the church. I said, you got to understand, I did not come to Shades Mountain Baptist Church as the missions king. I was a pastor at First Baptist Church in Ruston for eight and a half years and took one mission trip and had one other member with me, went to South Korea for a time of teaching. That was it. I didn't have a mission-going bag with me when I came here, when I met with the, uh, with the Vision 21 team. I didn't sit there and say, I've got this incredible vision for missions. No. It's just that what God began to lead me and speak to me and through different circumstances and people that came into my life and God began to open up my eyes and say, Danny, this is what this church needs over here. And that's why it's, it, we talk about it. It's the God-sized activity what took place during that time. And it was because no one can sit back there and look back, well, look what our pastor did, or look what this person, look what that person, look what God did. He's the one that gets the honor and the glory. And so now all of a sudden there are people all over this world that have got a connection with our church because of what God did and continues to do through those lives. That's on a, on a big church scale. It happens on an individual scale. I was in Boston two weeks ago and, and had a church planner standing up explaining about his church plan. 
And he says, we felt that God had called us to go to a place where there were no churches. So we took a map out in Boston. We looked around and there's an area right here where there's no church. Why is there no church here? And it was an area similar to our Metropolitan Gardens downtown, which is a Hope Six housing. And they had gone in and done like Hope Six housing, nice uh, area, uh, but a pretty rough area. And there were no churches there. And so he felt this is where they needed to plant. And so he and his wife came there and began to plant a church there. And they began to see God do some interesting things over there. And there was a particular woman that came to know Christ. And everywhere she went, she just told people about Jesus. That's all she would do. She would just tell people who Jesus was. But financially, she was hurting. And she was going through a real big struggle. And so they came together and raised some money for her and took these funds and they presented it to her close to Christmas time to say, hey, this is, we just want to give you this just from the goodness of our heart to help you with, with your finances. Well, at that moment, she said, when she received those funds, she says, I can't keep this for myself. And she felt that God was speaking to her and said, you need to use that for my glory. Now, she hit a crisis of belief. The first thing is to look at all your bills and all these needs and say, well, I really need this money, uh, maybe something later. But yet God impressed her, you need to do something. So you know what she did? She took a portion of the money, she went to the grocery store, and she bought some ingredients so she could make cupcakes. So she makes these cupcakes, and as she makes these cupcakes, she takes each one of them, and she puts a Bible verse on the cupcake. And then on Christmas morning, she went around the neighborhood, and she laid these down at the doorway of people in the neighborhood. And she didn't want to knock on the door because it was Christmas, and she didn't want to bother them. So she began to do that around the block. But she came to one house of a lady that she knew very well. She said it wouldn't bother her, so she knocked on her door. And she heard a rustling sound in there, but yet no one came to the door. So she just left the cupcake with the Bible verse and went and continued what she was doing. A week later, she ran into this lady and she said, hey, I, I came by your house at Christmas and I, I, I knocked on the door, and, but no one answered. And I was, heard something in there. I'm just wondering what it was. She says, oh, you're not going to believe this. She says, myself and my son were at a friend's house down the road. And things got out of hand. And things began to escalate and got really toxic in there. My son just kind of blew it. And he got so angry, he he rushed home. Now, here's a part of the story that the lady had told. After she had put her cupcake there and walked around the block, she circled back and she saw this young man running out of the house, jumped in his car and drove off. She thought that was odd. So as she's explaining that, the mom says, well, let me tell you what happened. He got toxic, got upset, he rushed back to his house. He got back to the house, he walked into the house, took a can of gasoline, poured over his head, and was getting ready to light a match, and there was a knock on the door. And by the time he got to the door, there was no one there, but there was just a cupcake with a Bible verse on it. And he read the Bible verse, he broke into tears, and he said, somebody cares. So he rushed out of the house, jumped in the car, drove back to where I was, explained the situation, and today we have him with some counselors that are helping him to deal with some of his issues. That's pretty scary, isn't it? (laughs) God-sized assignments, crisis of belief, it comes to us every day. I think every day as we're walking with God, he's 
pointing us to different ways. This woman was obedient to what God said to her. Encounters will be God-sized, and they come in different shapes and different sizes. Number three, when you face a crisis of belief, what you do next reveals what you really believe about God. This knocked me over. After I went through all of this study, I just, this right here, this statement. See, I, I would have thought when you face a crisis of belief, what you do next reveals what kind of faith you have, uh, uh, how, how strong you are. It reveals what you really believe about God. If you believe God has asked you to do something, then when you hit the crisis of belief, what you do next reveals what you really believe about God. Do you trust him or do you not? See, your response is more than an indicator about your level of faith or your willingness to sacrifice. It reveals what do you really believe about God? Is he powerful enough to deliver what he says? Is he strong enough to equip you for the task? Does God own everything in this world? And if so, can he provide those needed resources for whatever he purposes to do? What do you really believe about God? If God has spoken to you, you hit that crisis of the belief, that's what it's going to tell you. What do you believe about him? You see, the world, the reason much of the world is not attracted to Christ and his church is because God's people lack the faith to attempt things that only God can do. And that lack of faith reveals what you really believe about God. What you do next reveals what you really believe about God. And what the world is looking for is for individuals or a church to do things that can only be explained by the fact that God did it. When I was uh, the pastor in, in Ruston, Louisiana, we'd come to a, a church that had not done a building uh, since Moses. And um, that uh, it is you know things had just gone down it was it was it was plateauing dying and and god began to do a great work there as god began to do a great work we began to have people come and as people began to come we realized we don't have enough space we've got a worship center we've got an education building we've got an old outdated children's building and we knew we needed to renovate that children's building but we really had to add more space that there's no way we were just getting just bursting at the seams over here. So as I began to pray about it, and I began to sit down with architects and talk to them and, and, and lay it out, and they laid out this perfect building that would sit right there. So if you had like a, a worship center that's right here and our offices were here, and if you went down over here, we had our children's building here. So right in this space is where you pop a building. And this whole block we owned, sort of. We owned the whole block because the individual who had originally owned the block sold it to us. But he had an office right here, right in the middle of where we needed to build. Our building line went like about here, and then we're going over to here, and we need to put a new building right here. We had a few rental houses. We could get rid of those. We had access to all the property, but he had made an agreement that he would pay us something like a dollar a year and could keep his office right here. He was a CPA. He was moving up in age. So they thought it was a good deal. The bad news is he wasn't ever going to retire. 
he was going to stay there. So after praying, seeing the growth that was taking place, met with architects, I looked at ways to build around him, and that wouldn't work. I mean, he could be like an atrium or something, uh, but it, nothing. The only way it could work is we had to have that property. And so standing before our deacons as this young pastor and saying, and, and, and I'd even talked to, to Mr. Holliday, and he said he had no intentions of moving, and he said he had no intentions of retiring. Like my business, like work, I'm going to work till I die. I'll be right here. So I stood before our deacons as we presented this whole plan, getting ready to try to take it to the church. And naturally the deacons who've been living there for many years, they said, what about Mr. Holiday? He's not going to move. We can't do this. So as your brash young pastor, I stood up and I said, yes, he will move. I said, one of two things will happen. Either he will walk out on his own or God will take him out and the paramedics will carry him out. <laughs> you say, well, that being kind of cocky, no one. I had prayed and they asked me, I said, are you serious? I said, let's just go through a litany of questions. Is our church growing? Yes, it is. Is it God's will that we meet all these, reach these college students at Louisiana Tech? Yes, it is. Is it God's will that we meet the families and the singles and, and the senior adults here in Ruston, Louisiana? Yes, it is. Is it true that God is bringing these people here and a revival is taking place in our church? Yes, it is. So then you tell me where are we going to put them? There's one place we can put them is right there. That's exactly right. And if God's in charge of everything, God's in charge of this. And okay, pastor. And what do we do as a church? We move forward. We had our banquet to where we were trying to raise $1.5 million uh, in order to renovate a children's building and to put this new building up. We stood before our whole congregation, told them, give your money, make your commitments. This is what we're going to do. People would come up to me and say, what about Mr. Holliday? I said, ah, don't worry about that. And, and so people pledged. We pledged higher than ever been pledged in the history of that church, and people moved forward. People began to give their money. We renovated a children's building over here, and it was going to be finished in November. And when it was finished in November, the big building was supposed to get started. But Mr. Holiday was still sitting there. A couple of our members went over there to talk to him, and they got into an argument. I had to almost break up a fist fight uh, among them. He wasn't budging. He was going to stay there. And our people continued to give. They gave. And they're giving money to something that is impossible to even happen because someone is sitting in this building here. And when the summertime came, and they're seeing progress happening on the children's building, and they say, when are we going to start the big building? And then they say, well, Mr. Holiday's still there. I said, well, just don't worry. And uh, we went through this, and we got to September. We've been a year of giving money to something that, who knew what could happen? Mr. Holiday comes by my office. He said, have you got a few minutes to talk to me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah, come on in. Sat down on the sofa. I can still see it today. And he said, tell you what, I found another piece of property. Uh, a few blocks over here. That's going to be kind of closer to my home. And if you will give me to the end of the year, uh, I will, uh, I'll move out on that. I said, you bet. Uh, you, just, you just tell me the date and we'll work it out. And it was pretty cool to go in front of the congregation on that next Sunday and stand up and say, hey, let me just share with you some news about our neighbor over here, Mr. Holiday. 
He's got a great opportunity to move on down the road over here, and he's going to be moving his office. And so when we get to the end of this year, we'll be breaking ground on the new building that we have been supporting on there. You see, when you face a crisis of belief, what you do next reveals what you really believe about God. This is nothing about a pastor. This is nothing about influential layman that would go in there and try to twist his arm. This was nothing about doing some campaign in the city of Ruston to get him to change. No. What this was was about listening to what God said and acting on that. And it revealed what we believed about God. We believed that God could do it. Let me tell you the very last thing, and that's this. True faith requires action. True faith requires action. Joining God requires faith and action. Our actions speak and what you do, not what you say you believe, is what people look at. We can sit here all day and pontificate about all the great things we believe, but it's actually what you do that really shows what you believe about God. You can say you trust God. You can say, I believe God can do great things. It's not what you say. It's what you do. James 2.26 says this, For just as a body without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. True faith requires action and you've got to decide what you really believe about God who called you and the way you respond to God will reveal what you believe regardless of whatever you say following God requires faith and action you know when you in um, Moses's situation after he argued with God five times and God says hey take up your staff and go verse 18 says this and Moses went back to Jethro his father-in-law and said to him Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt. He took the step. Faith in action. Take that step. Now, I want to share with you one last statement here. It's not going to be on, on, uh, on the screen. I just want you to listen to it and, and, bring, and put it into your heart. The outward appearance of success does not always represent faith. And the outward appearance of failure does not always indicate that faith is lacking. A faithful servant is one who just does what the master says, no matter what the circumstances. And I want you to hear that last part of that sentence. Outward appearance of failure does not always indicate that faith is lacking. I have entered into a friendship with a great guy who is the vice president of the North American Mission Board. His name is Jeff Christofferson, and he has just really stretched me in, in about church planning. He's the vice president over Canada and Northeast. He shared his story of his family that is amazing. Alan and Helen Christofferson, they mar- met and they married in Canada in 1960. The job he had He only had an eighth grade education, and so the only job that he could get was to work for a brewery to where he would clean out the beer storage tanks. His salary was just enough to provide for his family and the two children that they ended up having, but they did have one free benefit, all the beer you could drink. (laughs) And so what happened is is most of the people ended up alcoholics, and that's where his life trajectory was going to be a life that was crushed because of alcoholism. And in 1967, they decided to call a babysitter to sit with their two children while while they went to see a movie 
And they were living in a place called Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, uh, Canada. And they went to the Orpheum Theater. They bought their Coke and their popcorn. They sat down to watch a movie that was called The Restless Ones. It's a Billy Graham movie. They didn't care. They just wanted to see a movie. And in the midst of that movie, the actors are sitting in a drive-in theater listening to Dr. Billy Graham give the plan of salvation. And in the movie, the actors bow their heads and pray and ask Christ to come into their heart. While that is happening, Alan Christofferson looks over to his wife, Helen, and grabs her hand as they're watching all of this. And it's as if God is speaking to them at the same time. The movie ends, and a middle-aged man in a suit and tie walks out and stands at the front, and he says, if any of you here have made a decision for Christ and want to have the saving presence of Christ in your heart, I would like for you to get up from the aisle and come down and stand here with me. And then there was silence. Minutes passed. Nobody moved. And then this man said, thank you very much. You're dismissed. Alan and Helen Christofferson went back to their VW bug in that parking lot, sat there holding each other's hands, began to talk about what they saw in the movie, talking about their life, and at that moment gave their past, present, and future to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they accepted him as Savior. And they said, we've got to make some changes. He said, I can't keep working at this brewery. So he learned a trade. He learned to become a welder. And so he began to do this welding. And as he did that, he got a connected with a man who was probably one of the craziest people he'd ever met. This guy was spiritually intensive. And he was such a faith-walking man that he would do whatever it is God called him to do. And many times it was out of personal inconvenience, but he did it. And he locked up with this man and was a part of his church. And this man was like a church-planting machine. And he just would go and do things for the gospel. And Alan Christofferson, for years, locked in with him and his whole family under this man's ministry and understood what it was like to have a kingdom-focused mindset and to do things for God's kingdom. Fast forward 35 years. There in Saskatoon, Canada, they were going to have a Franklin Graham crusade. And they're bringing together people from all different denominations. And they've asked Alan to be a part of that team. Alan comes in, is sitting at the, at the introductory uh, luncheon that they have. And the man stands up and says, is there anyone here who can share a testimony of just about what Dr. Graham's ministry has meant to them? And Alan, who's a welder and not a public speaker, just felt God's spirit says, you need to share your story. So all of a sudden, he finds himself standing in front of all of these people, and he shares his story about how he went to that theater and, uh, at the Orpheum Theater in 1967, and they prayed, and they received Christ, and then they met with someone else. And he said, and those two children that were being babysat, those two children are planting churches in Toronto and Ontario and in Chile, South America. And then he made this statement. I have no idea how many hundreds of people have come to the Lord because of what I experienced in that movie theater in 1967. He finished his talk. He went to sit down. As he sat down at his chair, there was an old man that slowly walked his way to him, and he introduced himself. And he says, my name is Tom Dice. 
I'm the man that 35 years ago brought the movie, The Restless Ones, to Prince Albert. I felt that God had spoken to me that I was to bring this movie to our town. I gathered my colleagues together and we said, let's do this. Every night I stood up and shared the invitation. Every night I went home disappointed. All these years I thought I had been a failure. I thought that I had not heard God correctly. But now what I'm hearing from you is that it was right. And he embraced him, and with tears falling from his eyes, he says, I see it now. I see it. So what I'm telling you is that the outward appearance of failure is not an indication that you did not respond correctly to God's activity. We have absolutely no idea what the long-term effects of things that we do. Because that man felt that conviction. There are churches being planted all over Canada and in South America because he accepted that. Now, outward appearances are sometimes deceiving. And you think about Jesus Christ. Most people would look at him and say, wow, that was a failure of a ministry. He ended up on a cross. But you see, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that three days later, Jesus, he rose from the dead, conquered sin, conquered death, ascended to the Father, and is sitting at the right hand of the Father today. It's a glorious victory. Where from the world standpoint, it looked like a terrible defeat. And when Jesus was there in the garden, and he came to a, in what we could call a crisis of belief, to where he says, Lord, if there's any other way that this cup can pass for me. Any other way that I don't have to go through all this pain, all this agony, this separation from you, I, I'd love it. However, if not, I will do your will. And when he came to the fork in the road, he says, I'll do what the Father says. And from the people standing around, it was a failure. But for those that stuck around a few days later, it was a glorious victory. And the same thing can be true in our lives. And so we're going to take an opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to celebrate what our Lord has done for us on the cross. And so I'm going to ask you at this time to, to just begin to prepare your hearts. And uh, I'm going to ask our ushers uh, if they will come and prepare the elements as uh, we prepare to distribute these elements. As we prepare to distribute the elements for the Lord's Supper, this is what I want you to know. Any person sitting here, you are open to partake of the Lord's Supper if you have made that decision for Christ as Savior. This is something that only believers are to take a part of. And so if there's ever been a time that you've accepted Christ as your Savior, uh, what they call being born again, uh, adopted into God's family, in just a moment as we pass the elements, we would encourage you to partake of those elements. But let's say that, that you've not made that decision. Then I would encourage you to just go on and pass the tray, but then be thinking about the claims of Christ and to know that our sinfulness is separated from him and that he went to the cross to die for those sins and that he was raised from the dead to show that he has overcome our sin 
and gives us an opportunity to live with God forever and to live in us today and to give us a purpose for life. And for those that are here but you're not a member of this church but you are a believer in Christ, feel free to partake of this because we're all part of of the church and the body of Christ. And we would welcome you to do that. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And as I pray and then as they pass it, we ask you just take the element and hold on to it. And listen to the words of the song that are being sung. Listen to God speaking to your heart. And let this be a special time before we partake of the elements. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for your son, Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, Garden of Gethsemane was a crisis, that uh, he followed your will. And Lord, for each one of us, we may be dealing with certain things in our lives that we're at that point of a crisis of belief. And we pray that um, the next step that we take would reveal what we believe about you. We pray during this time of the Lord's Supper that each of, our, each of us will focus in on our individual walk with you. And if there are things in our lives that need to be cleaned up, confessed, we ask that each person here would have that freedom to do that with you. And that there be a cleansing that would come across our soul and a thanksgiving for what Christ has done for our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.